Oh, for the dad, dad, just do an interview already. Wonderful. Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Here we go. Take it away, dad. Hello, everybody. This is Steve. And um, before we start the interview with Kelsey, when we recorded this interview, um, Christopher Pennock was still with us and he has suddenly passed away. And um, first we want to offer our condolences to his family and friends and all the people that knew him, like myself, like as a fan. Um, I know from interviewing Kelsey, Ansel Farage, Nathan Wilson, Kelly Kelly Aaron Decker, and David Selby, how much Christopher Pennock meant to them. And I really can't think of words that can help with the passing of somebody who is so important to so many people. Uh, One thing I want to say for those of us that enjoyed his work, um, maybe as a tribute or to help remember him from his craft, which we love so much in acting is go back and watch some episodes of him in dark shadows or some of the episodes in theater fantastique that Ansel did. Um, And just enjoy what he was able to leave us um, as, as what he loved so much to do in his craft. And I think the best way to close out this little um, thing before the interview is some words that David Selby um, emailed me about his passing. Um, Christopher Pennock, a lovely man who loved life, his family, and the acting craft. And I don't think any better words can be said. So now take a moment of pause silence, whatever way you want to say something, think something respectful. And then after that, we'll start the interview with Kelsey Hewlett. Thank you. Goodbye. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And today I'm going to be doing an interview with Kelsey Hewlett, who's known for a lot of work with Ansel Farage's films. Uh, Basically, she's been in um, Theater Fantastique and the most recently... The Most Haunted House in Venice Beach, besides a lot of other work. How are you doing today, Kelsey? I'm doing great. I'm I'm getting through this apocalypse pretty well. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I mean, um, as we're recording this now in um, near the end of January, I got a nice snowy day here in, in Maryland. And um, what's it like for you out there in Oklahoma? It's okay. It's, you know, it's, it's a little rainy here today. Um, but you know, otherwise it's, it's pretty nice. Um, things generally are, are fairly open here. We are, we're ahead of schedule on vaccinations in Oklahoma. A lot of that is because the, the tribes have gotten their own doses. So, uh, things are really rocking and rolling out here. It's, it's a good place to be. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I, I've always wondered what it was like to live in Oklahoma and things like that. And, um, and I know you're, you're, um, part Cherokee. I am. Yes, I am. I'm a Cherokee citizen. So um, it's, it, it's wonderful to be a, a part of a tribe and just a part of that community. Um, Oklahoma is great. The people here are wonderful. Um, there's, you know, there are things to see and do, but Oklahoma is just flat. If you stand on a coffee can, you can see Arkansas. It is flat. <laughs> it's just not, not a ton of stuff to see in the landscape, but there are lots of little hidden gems in, in the cities, particularly in Tulsa. All right. And, and where do you, and, um, I mean, you used to live in Oklahoma. I know you're, you're back there right now visiting and you live in Los Angeles. 
but in Oklahoma, where where did you live? Did you live in Tulsa or did you live elsewhere in Oklahoma? I'm from Owasso, which is just right outside of Tulsa. And really what, what puts Owasso on the map is that for a good 15 years when I was a kid, my neighbor was Garth Brooks. Um, he, yeah, he kind of retired from touring in 2000 to raise his kids. And he came out to Oklahoma to raise them. So in the year 2000, he moved out here and he was just, he had his own you know house just kind of down the street. And you know, we'd see him out at you know Walmart or at Subway or at the Albertson's grocery store. And he just, he was such a sweetheart, such a nice person. He did so many things for the community. And it was all, it was all kind of secretive. Like he never wanted to get credit for it. He was just always doing kind things for people here. And you know, everyone loved him. And it was, uh, we were sad when he moved back to Nashville to unretire after his youngest went off to college, but um, it was it was sure nice to have him here for such a long time. He's really, really a sweet person. Well, that's always good to hear because you always wonder what people are like, you know, in real life and that kind of stuff. And he, he always seemed to be such a down home earth kind of guy, and obviously that's what he is, you know. And so I think fans of Garth Brooks would be happy to hear that. Yeah, uh, and he just—I don't know if you've ever been to a Garth concert, but. It'll change your life, <laughs> whether you're familiar with his music specifically or not. He's just the most electric performer. And then as a human being, just a, again, just a, a darling person. And you don't get it really on television, but he has the most beautiful blue eyes in person. Um, and it just, the, the camera doesn't capture it, but he's, he's just really just, just a doll. He's wonderful. Awesome. And um, it's, Makes me makes me want to get out the my Garth Brooks um, CD now and listen to it, but we'll I'll do that later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. So I'm curious, when you were growing up, what helped make you decide that you wanted to go into acting? I mean, did it, was it something that um your parents steered you in? Is it something like maybe you saw a movie or, or a play and you decided I wanted to go that route? I mean, what led you to go choose the path that you've chosen? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. My parents are both school counselors and so they they were trying to kind of nudge me away from this because they wanted me to have more security uh, and they wanted me to have a, a career with job security and financial security and all of that um, but I just fell in love with the art of it uh, my memory of, of the beginning of this was when I was I think it was eight years old and I was watching the movie Hocus Pocus uh, which is a, a kid's movie from Disney. It has you know, Bette Midler and Kathy Najimy and Sarah Jessica Parker. And I loved it so much. And I watched it over and over again because we had um, you know, the Disney Channel at home. And it would, just, it would be on quite a bit at Halloween. I'd watch it over and over, and I thought it was fascinating. And my dad was always, um, he was an avid garage sailor. So he would go out every Saturday to garage sales. I'd go with him sometimes. And I remember seeing a cassette tape of Bette Midler at the garage sale. And I didn't really know who she was. I just recognized her face and her, and her name from Hocus Pocus. And she looked totally different. She wasn't a witch at all. And I was, I was just, it was, I, I didn't know what to think of it. You know, I, I was young enough to be you know, a little bit spooked out by Hocus Pocus, but old enough to understand that they're actors and they were pretending. So anyway, I saw this cassette tape and I, just, I was fascinated by it. So dad bought me the cassette tape and I brought it home and, I listened to it over and over and I just, I wore it out and um, convinced my parents to let me watch the movie Beaches, uh, which I remember was PG-13 and I was not 13 and it was typically not allowed, but they let me watch it this one time and I, I just, 
I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. She just, she was a totally different person playing a different character and she was just fascinating and she was so funny and so brazen and so smart. And, and that's when I decided I want to do that. I want to be like Bette Midler. Um, she can, she can play all these different characters and she can sing, which I cannot, but, um, I, I was just amazed at her ability and I wanted to dive right into acting. So I got into community theater from there. So Bette Miller was your gateway and Hocus Pocus. I remember seeing that in the theaters and same with beaches and, um, two totally different movies. Cause one is a, a, a heart pulling drama. And the other one, as you said, a comedy slash I guess you could call it a little bit of horror because they are witches, but just a dash. Yeah, horror for an eight-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think um, both of them are, are, are great films. I mean, I've I've never joined both when I saw them, and I've seen them a, a few t- few times since. I've seen Hocus Pocus a lot more because my daughter loves Hocus Pocus, and mm-hmm. um, you know, so it's the same one I got to see a lot more often than Beaches. You know, Beaches is one of those you you pull out every couple times, every so often because the acting is so strong. I think. Wasn't Barbara Hershey in that yes. also? That's correct. Yes. Yeah, and John Hurd was in it. Um, yeah, there was. Uh, I I had it on on VHS, and I wore out my VHS. I watched it probably fifty times. I stopped counting when I got into the thirties, but um, yeah, watched it over and over and over. I just absolutely loved it, and I loved that Midler singing, and um, I, I love watching the trajectory of her character's life and how she always knew that she wanted to be an artist. The character was. C.C. Bloom, and um, she always wanted to be a singer, and just watching her her path to success in that movie was an inspiration to me as a kid, and enjoyed it so much. So, And yet, to this day, Bette Midler says that her favorite role that she's ever played was Winnie in Hocus Pocus. She thinks that was her best acting. So she's she's working on a, a sequel to it right now, so fingers crossed that, that we'll get that pretty soon. Yeah, the, the long... Long rumored, hopefully it'll ever, hopefully it'll happen. Hocus Pocus too, because I mean it's been years, and part of me when you hear that, mm-hmm. it's always like, ah, we'll see, we'll see, and, and you know, because you, you know you, you yeah. keep getting your hopes up. My daughter, I told her, look, they're saying they're Hocus Pocus too, because all they keep saying that. So she's even gotten, she's even gotten to the point where she's getting cynical about it. But, but mm-hmm. maybe that, maybe that's why it should come out, and everybody's getting, everybody's thinking it's not going to happen. So let's bring it. And uh, I think, I think we need a nice little comedy right now. I think so too. I, that is what the world needs is just a little levity. That's right. And kind of, it kind of answered two questions I was going to ask you right there. One thing I want to ask you, uh, I was looking on your, your Facebook page. What is it with the goat on your back? <laughs> that was goat yoga. That, that was a thing we did up in, in Malibu, uh, and it was a, a fundraiser um, for a, a mentoring program for high school students, uh, and they they did a goat yoga and wine tasting session up in Malibu. So I, I went out there, and I had planned to go with a friend, but she, she had been in, unfortunately, a, a car accident and couldn't make it, so ended up going by myself, but... It was great. I'm not a yogi by any stretch, and I, I don't have any particular skills. I spent a lot of time just doing like that tabletop stance, and uh, there were just goats running around, and they would jump on our backs. Um, the friendliest one's name was Nibbler, um, and he was he was really cute and funny. Had a little little wagon tail, and then there was this gigantic one, which I think was the picture you saw. His name was Gary. And I have never in my life met a Gary who was a gentleman. And this was no exception. <laughs> Gary was a jerk. 
Gary was huge. Gary was probably a hundred pounds and he would jump on my back and it would just crush me. But I was having such a good time anyway. Um, I didn't have any long-term injuries from that. I got a few back scratches, but it was so worth it. I, I enjoyed Gary, even though he was kind of mean. <laughs> Certainly I loved getting to play with Nibbler and all the goats were great. And then after the yoga, we all went wine tasting and got to play with the goats some more. So I, I would do it again if I could. I had, I had a blast. I've never heard of goat yoga until, till now. I mean, cause I saw the picture I could see you in, I could see everybody was in yoga stances. I knew it was yoga and I thought maybe a goat just like broke in and decided to jump on you for whatever reason. And, uh, no, it was, it was, it was allowed and it was actually, I guess, um, encouraged for the goats to interact. Yes. They are they're trained to do that, to, to jump on your back. Yes. Um, and it's, it's only Gary was the one who was by far the heaviest and it was only when I wasn't expecting it, that it was really, it threw me off and it crushed me a couple of (laughs) times. I fell on my stomach, but, um, I, it was so much fun. I I just had such a great time doing that. I, I I hope we get to do it again soon. I I guess there must be a California thing. I just don't know. I've never, you know, I'm on the East (laughs) coast. Yeah, um, I I don't know if there's goat yoga elsewhere, but I'm sure that there are some some goat farms in in Maryland or wherever, and uh, you can look it up. They they probably got some of it there. It could be. It could be. Uh, that that would that would be that would be interesting. <laughs> it's an experience. Um, your your daughter would probably enjoy it too. Um, it's, when I first heard of it, I thought that's it sounds like a California hippy dippy thing, but. Um, then I remember seeing a, a commercial for one of the insurance companies um, where they they featured goat yoga as a joke, and then I was like, "Oh, well, maybe it's not maybe it's not such a rarity because uh, other people apparently have heard of it." So, yeah, it's it's becoming it's becoming more popular. Um, I, I don't know what what effect COVID will have on that, and I think the world's going to look a whole lot different once we're on the other side of this. But I hope that's something that's that's still there and still popular because it's just there, there's a, a purity to it. And um, it's just, it's just so much fun. And of course the wine tasting afterwards probably was just the icing on the cake. Then after all that experience. It was fun. It, yeah, <laughs> it was great. And and the goats would just like jump up and sit in your lap while you're drinking your wine. It was, it was a blast. The weather was so beautiful that day. And of course Malibu is gorgeous. So it was a great time. And, and speaking of um, animals, um, how is Opie doing? Opie's great. Opie flew with me to Oklahoma. Um, so Opie just sits on my lap on the plane on the way in. And so Opie's here and he's, he's doing great. Um, Opie recently had a sex change. So, um, he's had a gender reassignment surgery. Um, uh, but Opie, Opie, the cat is awesome. He is six years old and doing great. Good, good. You know, it's just, I was just, you just wondering, you always worry, you always worry about pets when there are all these things going on and, or Adam, I, I, I don't really yeah. like to call my, my little dog Milo a pet. I like to call my little canine companion. So it's. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Opie's, Opie's my little sidekick. He's the, he's the Robin to my Batman. And of course. Yeah. And Opie the, might look the at, gender reassignments are, this was like a medical, it was, it was not an actual, like changing his body for fun. It was a medical necessity for. Uh, for reasons to save his life, but we we have fun with joking about it. And of course, I think from Opie's perspective, being that being that it's a cat, he probably looks at it that that he's Batman and you're Robin, you know, because they're not going to play second fiddle to a human. Yeah, yep. <laughs> no, Opie's the boss. That that's exactly right. 
Um, yeah, and I, I, I grew up with, uh, with a dog and I always, I, I never really cared for cats much. And, and when I decided to get one, just because it, it makes more sense for my life in Los Angeles, cause I don't have a, a yard or anything. Um, uh, I was just, I was dead set on not becoming a cat lady. I wasn't going to be one of those people who gets little ceramic cats and decorates the walls and the bookshelves. I was not going to do any of that stuff. And I haven't, but I am ultimately a slave to my cat. I just, he, he's, the, he's the greatest. He's so cute and cuddly and I just, I give him attention all the time. Um, so yeah, having, having pets is the best. Well, I definitely think so. Now you mentioned that Bette Miller was one of your, um, idols or heroes growing up to help lead you to acting, but you have other heroes too, that you looked up to from that were in the past and some are still, they're, they're no longer with us and some that are still with us. Um, Will Rogers, Walter Cronkite, and Dolly, Dolly Parton. And, and, yes. how, and how are those heroes for you? How did, how did they all intertwine? Um, I, they just, I, I love, I love their, their persona and their approach to the work. I love that Walter Cronkite was no, no nonsense guy. He would tell you like it is. He would tell you the facts and leave it to you to determine your opinion on that. Um, I love Will Rogers and there's, he, he's such a funny guy. You know, he's, he's from Oklahoma. He's, he's Oklahoma's native son. And, um, there's just, there's, there's a, a, there's something so wholesome about his approach to comedy, but it, there was always kind of a bite to it as well. And Dolly Parton is, um, she's kind of the America's fairy godmother. And she's, she's also been kind of the patron saint of 2020 and she's helped to, to fund a lot of the, the coronavirus vaccine research. And, uh, I love her self-deprecating humor. Um, there's, there's something about her that is just so wonderful and everyone loves her. Um, I remember going to do a, a concert of hers at the Hollywood bowl and seeing all these people who showed up to go to her concert. It is the most diverse group of white people I've ever seen. Like she gets everybody. <laughs> she, gets, she gets all the, all the conservatives. She gets all the drag Queens. I mean, she gets everybody. I, I don't know anyone who doesn't love Dolly Parton. It's just kind of universal. Dolly Parton and Mr. Rogers, they have no haters. They're just, they, they are above all the rest. And all ages too. I mean, you have, you have older people, mm-hmm. younger people, children. I mean, it's just amazing. The, the people that she, mm-hmm. the, the charisma that she's able to utilize. And, and obviously she used a lot of her stuff for um, good and helping people out, which I think is the other thing that draws more people to her. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and a, a lot of the, the younger generation, they know Dolly Parton as the book lady because she has that imagination library and she sent millions of books to underprivileged children all over the world. And so they know her as the book lady rather than as the singer songwriter icon, Dolly Parton. And, and I've always thought that's really interesting. Yeah. Everyone has kind of a, a different way of viewing her, but everyone views her as, as a positive. She's just, she's wonderful in every way. And I think um, she she's a, a woman of faith, and she she really has a, a heart for that, and she lets that be displayed in, in everything that she does in the world. I just think it's so beautiful. Oh, I do too. And um, speaking of Will Rogers, if I remember right, there's a quote that he was said that if dogs don't go to heaven, then I want to go where they go. <laughs> I remember that. Yes, he's got got lots of little quips like that. 
um, he has the his old house is up in the Pacific Palisades, fairly close to Malibu, and um, it's a it's a museum that's just open to any time, and it's it's free to go in, and anybody can go in and look at it, and and you can see his old house and the way he lived. They have uh, a, like a, a running screen roll of, of his his adventures and his career, so you can just watch that over and over, and then you can go see all the stables where he kept his horses. His favorite horse's name was. I think they were Maverick, I think, and Soap Suds. So he had his, his horses up there, and it's, it's just it, it's beautiful to see. And um, it also shows where he lived in his kitchen and dining room area. And you can see under the dining room table, there's um, some gum. He used to chew gum and take it out and like spit it out in his hand and put it up under the table. And uh, my understanding is his wife used to get on to him for that. But he just, at the end of the day, he was always just an Oklahoma boy. And that's just how he lived. Even after he was rich and famous, he was still just little Will Rogers. So kids that are listening to this in school, if you're putting gum underneath your desk, when you get, you know, get back into school and everything like that, you can just say, I'm just doing it because Will Rogers did it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You can still be a a successful radio cowboy. (laughs) And that'll blow the teacher's mind that, you know, if you're an eight year old and you're saying that to be like, you know who Will Rogers is? And, and, and to be honest, the teacher, depending on the age of the teacher, they might not know. They might have to look it up. And the student might say, well, look him up. It's true. Yeah. A lot of the, the youngins today maybe wouldn't know Will Rogers. It, it, everyone in Oklahoma would know him. But outside of that, I, I'm, I'm not sure anymore, which is tragic. I mean, he really, he was a trailblazer in, in many ways. Um, yeah, he's he's definitely one of my heroes. Well, I think I think he's... Uh, a hero to a lot of people. And I think, as you said, with the first, all three of them, actually, they, they speak the truth. They don't hold back. They just, they tell you how, what they're feeling and you're, you don't have to wonder about, did he have hidden meanings or whatever? And they did it in three different styles, humor, just the facts and heart. And, and, and you know, it, little mixes of both and all three of them and things like that. And I think nowadays in the world, we need more Walter Cronkites in the world. Um, definitely. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that the 24 seven news media has been destructive in many ways to our, our national discourse. And it's created almost a, a cult like political atmosphere, um, from every different side. And I, I think that that's really unhealthy. If we can get back to a place where we we're just hearing facts and then we can develop our own opinions. I think that's going to be a, a much, a much healthier way to move forward. And, and for those listeners that are wondering, she's, she actually knows exactly what she's talking about because you have a degree in political science, right? I do. I do. I have a degree in political science and a degree in drama. So I got both of my degrees from the University of Oklahoma. And uh, yeah, I know that they sound totally different on the surface, but they're actually very similar. Uh, acting is a study of human nature and who wants what and how much they want it and how far they'll go to get it and who they will hurt in the process. And politics is all very similar, just a study of human nature. And it's been really fascinating to, to watch the two of them overlap. I can imagine because I'm, I was, I was a social science, I'm a social science degree and um, political science, history, geography, um, 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 a whole bunch of different sociology. All those are intermixed into the social science degree. And I think you cannot understand one without understanding the other and everything is so interrelated. And I think 
that's what a lot of people are missing. They get so focused on, because one of them's economics, like some people just get focused on economics and just look at one point of view, but really you need all the points of view in order to really understand the root of an issue. And then you've enabled to come up with a better understanding and then hopefully a better solution. But so many people focus on a, a singular hot topic or part of it. And then looking at it at the micro level instead of the macro level. And I think you have to look at both in, in order to be able to solve problems. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's almost like trying to, to study politics without studying history. Um, you, you cannot have one without the other. Um, and it's, it's funny to see all these people struggling with, with, with where we are right now as history is repeating itself. Like, y'all, this is an open note test. I don't know how you fail this, but we are seeing history repeat itself in, in real time today. Um, so that, that is heartbreaking, but I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to, to come to a place where we can see that there are a whole lot of problems that we have right now. And we're going to, we're going to do a whole lot better to fix them if we can come together and, and make decisions together and, and focus on what's actually best for people um, rather than what the 24 seven news media has to tell us about what's going to help which politician and which party and which faction of which party. Um, I think none of that is good. And this whole stand culture that we have now around politicians, I think is very unhelpful. The way that people worship particular politicians, the way that maybe 10 or 20 years ago, they would have felt about, celebrities or even before that the way that they would feel about Elvis is the way that they'll feel about a politician now and and that's not good because these politicians are public service excuse me they're public servants and they need to be held to account um and and it's important that we're able to to view them with a, an objective eye and uh that that needs to be said of, of the media as well I'm not I'm not a fan of vilifying anyone in the media when they're trying to hold public servants to account because public servants all work for us. Oh yeah. I agree with you. And I, th I think, uh, oh, and that little thing with a, a Will Rogers type thing, the way I've been looking at this whole thing all last year was well, is okay. Somebody spilt milk. The milk is spilt. Hmm. Instead of arguing about who spilt the milk, let's first clean up the milk. Then we can talk about how to yeah. keep the milk from spilling in the future. But now it seems like everybody's focused on who spilt the milk instead of cleaning up the mess. And once we get the mess cleaned yeah. up, then we can go back and try to figure out, well, what caused the issue and then how we can keep that from happening again. And I think that's what we need, like a Will Rogers type voice that could use that common sense, plain speaking language that everybody understands. And, and that's, that was his um, ability, his is one thing that everybody at that time understood is he was able to speak just like everybody else. Cause he was like everybody else, but he actually was able to put it out there and had that forum with the radio and stuff to let people know. Definitely. Yeah. And, and there was something so authentic about it uh, that I think is, is missing with, with some of the, the political leaders of today. You know, they, they try to be folksy and plain spoken, but, you know, when they are flying in on their private jets and then, you know, switch to a 1992 Toyota truck to roll into whatever event they are. And um, they're using a, a small town upbringing as a political prop um, rather than, than using it as a way to, to communicate with people. Um, I, th I think that, that that does some damage. And um, it's, there's, there's a dishonesty about it that, that is a little cringy for me. I always go with the theory. You shouldn't have to tell somebody 
who you are, they should be able to understand it from how, what you do. And that, that applies to like everybody. Yeah. So if you have to keep explaining to people, um, I am so-and-so, then obviously you're not getting it through your body language, your normal words, your normal deeds, your normal actions. If people are getting conflicting messages, it's because you're trying to portray yourself as something you're not truly are. And if you truly are that, people will see that. And regardless of what other people try to do, they will know that, which goes back to, as you said, with Dolly Parton, you know, people can see what they see because it's, if it looks like a duck, it sounds like a duck. It's a duck. <laughs> it doesn't take. Exactly. And when, when you're meeting someone new, the longer your introduction is, the less you've done. Um, I, you, I, you shouldn't have to, to have a, a lengthy description of yourself um, to be able to, to just be who you are and, and be identified. Um, I think that will all come through in, in the way that you behave and the way that you treat people. And I think that, and I think if people are always trying to do that, I think it'd be, the world would be a much better place, you know, for a lot of people. And I think most people are that way. It's just, we don't see them. Yes. Yeah. Now, speaking of being seen, you've been in a lot of different um, projects on your IMDb page, you know, TV, movies, and so on. And, um, I want to focus mostly on your work that you've done with Ansel Farage. You've done a lot of work with Ansel. I think I, I'm, I didn't count it, but I'm just going to guess it's probably about half or maybe 40% of your filmography is with Ansel. Yeah, I think, I think that's about right. I started working with Ansel. Um, I believe it was back in 2012 uh, and we've done many projects together since. Um, I think of it almost like uh, if you look at the, the Christopher Guest movies and how he uses the same actors over and over again. Uh, Ansel, of course, is a totally different genre of filmmaker, but um, he he has actors who he knows and trusts, and he likes to work with them over and over to create brand new pieces of art every time. And and I really I appreciate it. I love working with him. I love the team that he's assembled. So it's really been a gift to be able to work with Ansel. I look at it as... I know you used Christopher Guest. I think of it as um John Ford had his repertoire company. You know, when you watch John Ford movies, you'll see a lot of the similar people in um either cameos or smaller roles or major roles. And because again, that trust and and I guess also apply also applies to your the crew and everything. Because once everybody knows, then you can almost get to that shorthand and everybody knows what they're expected to bring because, because expectations are there. And I think that's the wonderful thing about Ansel is he's developing that similar troop, so to speak, where, and also, you know, what it's like working with him. Somebody calls you up and says, Kelsey, I got a project. You're, you're more, you're, you're almost always going to probably say yes, because you know, he's like what his project are usually like. So unless there's some kind of scheduling conflict, you're usually going to find probably, you know, I, I bet you're more inclined to say yes. Yeah, well, because I know what to expect. Um, and, and of course, when, when I first started working with Ansel, the film shoots were, were pretty long. You know, we had a lot of work to do. But as, as we continue to work together, the film shoots tend to get a lot shorter because everyone knows what to expect from everyone else on set. And we all know the level of professionalism that every other actor is going to bring. And so we all try to bring our A game. Um, and and there's, there's something really comforting and really nice about that. I, I really enjoy that a lot. Um, and, and yes, I, I try to, I try to find time to work with Ansel anytime I have the opportunity. Um, there have been some, some challenges at, at points in that just because as an actor, my training is really mostly in contemporary American realism. 
And that's not what Ansel writes or produces. So this has been a, a lot to explore. A lot of it is um, fantasy, psychological thriller type stuff that is it's totally different from my training. And it's been a, a brand new world to dive into. So every time I get a new script from him, the, the analysis that I do of the script is totally different, a different approach than what I was trained with and, and what I typically work with. So um, you know, there, there have been some that have really been intimidating, um, you know, particularly uh, there was one where I, I played a character called Lady Cat, and it was all kind of like comedy musical type stuff. But in, in the world of fantasy, it was, it was totally different. And I was certainly intimidated by it at first, but ultimately came around to it. And and so glad we were able to work on that together. It was a great learning experience. You're talking about the Detective Adam Sarah um, stories. Um, Correct. Yes. Which was, which yeah, was, those those were different for sure. Even even from what Angel already does, which is already pretty different, pretty out there in a good way. It, it's it's so distinctive and so creative. There's I, there's not really anything I could compare it to in terms of the style. But that's that's what I love about it. He's always thinking outside the box. He's got a great future as a producer, director, writer. Oh, he does, and that's one of the things that's nice about seeing your work with him and seeing his work also and the other actors in his repertoire, um, I can see everybody develop and, and you can see everybody improving as the, as the movies and the shorts and everything go on. And um, the detective Adam Sarah one was more for those wondering, it's more like a, um, a superhero type thing. It's like, it's detective. It's not really, he's not a superhero himself per se, but it's the, the characters around him are like Batman type villains with their names. And because of, yeah. but there's copycat and of course your lady cat and you're, you're kind of like the equivalent of um, a Harley Quinn type character in that universe. Yes. Um, and that, that was one where we were playing a little bit more with caricatures rather than traditional characters. Um, so it was, it was definitely, definitely a switch, but uh, enjoyed it a lot. Um, but I, so I keep begging Ansel to, to write at least one contemporary American realism project for me. Just, just one thing I can work with. <laughs> normal and he he won't do it because that's that that's not the the genre that he works with he he just loves working with his imagination in a way that is bright and different and beautiful and i think i think his projects really really have grown a lot in the last years um in, in the way that they have developed and evolved and um there's there's definitely a a path that he's on creatively that i think is really interesting i'm i'm excited to see what he does in the next few years Oh, I know. And I'm sure you'll probably be in some of those things that he does or not, you know, at least a good portion of them from what I'm seeing. Uh, one of the things, I hope so. one of the things I think early on that you did with him was Dr. Mabuse, the sequel one. Yeah. And, yeah. And what was it like working on the Dr. Mabuse one, the second movie that was, I think, I think it came out in 2014. So I'm not sure when you filmed, when he did the filming of it, it might've been prior. Cause you know, as you know, production schedule just because when you, when you do your shooting it might be a year or two when it actually goes out to the um, to the audience but you were yeah um i'm sorry go ahead i was gonna say but you got to work with uh, i'm not sure if you got to work with them or not but like there was jerry lacy nathan wilson Catherine lee scott laura parker you know we're all and then i think you played Lori lucy lucy yeah so what was it like working yeah on i got to work with all of them it was wonderful 
um, yeah, I, I kind of, the, the way that I had, had gotten the role to begin with was, was kind of a stroke of luck. I had auditioned for a different project that Ansel had done um, a year or two before. I think it was called Drop Dead Fred. And I ended up, I didn't get the role and I, I didn't think anything of it because I didn't know Ansel at that time. He was just someone I auditioned for and I'd done a lot of auditions and I just shook it off. Um, but then he, uh, he had posted a casting call for this film and I, I made no connection to the previous one that he had worked on. I had no idea. I just saw this character and thought that it was something that I, I might be able to perform well. So prepared my audition and went in for it and, and booked the role from there. And he had remembered me from the previous audition, um, which is really a testament to, I would encourage actors always bring your best work. Because even if you don't book the role, you can book the room. Um, you can you can make an impression on the on the filmmakers you're working with there, and be able to work with them in the future. And that that was really such a gift and such a great experience. Um, I have to tell you, I'm I'm a little embarrassed. I was totally unfamiliar with the Dark Shadows Empire at the time that I had booked this role. Um, it was something that you know, my parents knew well. My mom, when she was in high school, she used to come home and, and watch those Dark Shadows episodes every day. She loved them. But I knew nothing about it. Um, but because I'm, I'm an actor and I wanted to prepare, you know, I, I looked up these actors' work uh, prior to showing up to film. And it was just truly a master class in acting. Um, but particularly uh, Catherine. Uh, I got to work with her quite a bit and was really, really fascinated um, by by what she brought to each scene. There was something just magnetic about the way that she performed her character. And I, I learned so much from watching her. It was really, really something. And uh, also with the, the, the Dr. Mabuse projects that we worked on, so much of that was done with blue screen, which is, essentially just like a green screen, except it's a little bit easier on the eyes. Um, but having to imagine the entire world that we're living in without it being there at the time, that was also new to me as an actor. Um, everything about our surroundings, we had to just envision it. And it didn't actually show up in the movie until after we had already done the acting work. Um, so being able to compare our own vision with the other actors and then ultimately with the final product. Um, was something that was really interesting to watch also. I know you've done a lot of plays. Did you ever do Our Town? I didn't, no. But you know what I'm talking about. Never did Our Town. But you know, I I think that would be, if you did an Our Town type play, that almost prepares you as an actor for things like this, where where there's virtually no scenery. Because everything, because almost every production I've ever seen, it's the most bare bones of scenery or props there and i think that sets up for this as an actor if you were to do that type of production and you go into this everything's in your mind anyway was it changes so much so fast yeah yeah it is but the the thing about this is it's because it's not again it's not contemporary american realism so much of it is fantasy every actor's imagination of what this world looks like is different and collaborating just on that without ever expressing it in words, um, but being able to meet each actor where they are mentally and emotionally in each scene. That was a, a brand new challenge that I had never experienced before. But again, such a great learning process to be able to do that with these 
incredible dark shadows actors who were just icons in their field. And it was, it was such a gift. Um, to this day, that's, that's one of my favorite memories of my, my 10 years in Los Angeles is, is being able to work with Jerry Lacey and, and Catherine and Laura and Chris Pennock was great. The, the whole crew. Well, I know you, you worked quite a bit with Chris Pennock, which we'll get to in a little bit. I mean, there, there's a lot of shorts that you're in with him. Um, and he's and, and all of them are such good actors because they came from the theater field, one into the TV show and then one into other work beyond that. And I mean, Jerry Lacey has that voice, that gravitas and, and Catherine Lee Scott is just able to do almost that. I don't think she does anything poorly. You know, it, she does her thing. And Laura Parker always has that mystique that I, I don't, I, you know, it's I, I, uh, she always has that thing where it's, it's like, is she bewitching you or not? I think even if she's in a normal role where she's not playing a person with um, supernatural powers, she just can't help it. I think it's just her, her aura, her, whatever she is able to, to put off or, or you know, get, get people out. I mean, people don't, not familiar with her past work would still probably be bewitched by her. I agree. Yeah. There's, there's something, something magical about just their presence that they bring to each role. They really inhabit the character and, um, you've heard about uh, fashion, for example. Someone will say, you know, "Don't, don't let the dress wear you. you. Wear the dress. Don't let the dress wear you." And that's what these actors do with their characters. They they wear the character. They don't let the character wear them. They're always in control of every choice they're making. Uh, and it's really it's there's a genius to it. It's just magical to watch. Now, did you get to do anything with any, any of the three of them that was in, that was interesting outside of the to product, like um the doing the roles? Like, did you have any conversations with them or things like that, or was it just mostly y'all showed up at this on the, on set and performed? Uh, my my experience with them hasn't been outside of the the realm of working. Um, certainly, during our our times between scenes and when we would you know break for lunch, we would get to to chat and I get to hear about their lives and their families. Uh, Jerry Lacey is married to Julia Duffy, who is a, also a, a wonderful actor, and I, I loved getting to hear all about her and her life. And um, she was uh, she was on Designing Women in the, the later seasons of that, and that was one of my favorite shows growing up. So I love getting to, to hear about JC, excuse me, Jerry Lacey, and his history as an actor, and also his his family and how they work together as actors. Um, so getting to talk with them about that was great. Uh, I love getting to hear their history. Um, Chris Pennock, anytime we get to work with him, it, it feels like we're always trying to work around his theater schedule because he's always working that way as an artist. Um, so that's been great. Um, but outside of that, I've really only see that, seen them at the, uh, the movie premieres. So um, I haven't, haven't had the privilege of getting to just go out to coffee with them, but certainly hope that that would be an option in the future. I just, I adore all of them. Well, I think that would be cool because, I mean, you're lucky. And I said the same thing with, with Nathan um, Wilson and Kelly Aaron Decker, all, alias Kelly Kitko. Um, when the, you're when you have a chance to have these professionals that have been doing it for so long, you and obviously from what you're talking about, you're you're picking their brains, their brains when you're talking mm-hmm. to them and learning so much. Just by watching them work and how they perform, is is I'm sure helpful to you in developing your craft because here they've they've were young they were the younger actors one time and then they had the experienced actors help them and i think from what i'm understanding all four of them that you mentioned have been very receptive to helping the younger performers 
just like they were helped back in the day. Absolutely. They've, they've been just so wonderful to be able to work with. And, and there are some things that I, I, I'm too hesitant to ask because it's, it's so bush league to go up to them and be like, what was your motivation? What was your character thinking in this moment? I just wouldn't do that. I'm, if I did ask them that, I'm sh- they are wonderful and they would be so kind and generous about it. But I'm too shy to ask them those things. It just feels so unprofessional as an actor to really dive into those the depth of their character work. Um, Cause that's, that's something that as an actor, you don't necessarily want to share with the other characters on set. Um, just because it's, it's part of your whole character analysis and character identity. And there are things that you don't want to reveal to tip off the other actors because acting is so much about living and being in the moment. Um, but I'm sure if I did ask them, they would share all of those things. And certainly they shared a lot about their, their history in, in the business. Um, there's, there's a big difference between acting as an art and acting as a business and acting as a business is much more of a challenge for me personally. Um, I'm not, I'm not great about the, the marketing and the self promotion, something about it all, all feels a little bit sleazy, uh, but there is an element of that that is absolutely necessary. Um, and so getting to talk to more established actors about their career paths, particularly in the business of acting has been really interesting. And um, of course that whole dark shadows crew, they've all been very generous about imparting their knowledge and wisdom. And I've, I've certainly appreciated it. And then that's what I mean. I mean, and, it, and it's amazing that Ansel has embraced and embraced them. Cause obviously for those that listen to the interview I did with him, he is a huge dark shadows fan. I mean, the, um, I think if he's, if he's not the number one fan, he's got to be in the top 10, you know, of, of people with, with the knowledge level and stuff like that. And him being able to have them work and people will say, well, why would so-and-so do this or that? An actor is only acting. An actor is only an actor when they're acting, when they're not acting, yes. they're not an actor and his projects are interesting and, and his professionalism and the professionalism he brings with having you guys develop as a team also, I think they're able to feed off all that and they just enjoy themselves. And as you and I were discussing before we started the interview, I firmly believe there's no such thing as an, um, an actor on the ups, on the up, upside or downside. I think it's just an actor is always learning how to do their craft and how to get better and better at it. And so it's, I don't think they've ever, I don't, I think when an actor thinks they've mastered their craft, is that's when they probably start their downslide. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's the thing about art is you will, you will never reach perfection. Um, there, there is no such thing. And you can always make improvements on what you've done in the past. Uh, and because human beings are never fully complete, your interpretation and reflection of a human being as an actor is never fully complete. Um, so I, I know that, Meryl Streep talks about how she, she doesn't like to watch any of her movies after they're complete. She just she doesn't like to see it. It's, it's too tough. And I totally relate to that because anytime you're watching yourself on camera, you think about things you could have changed, things that you could have brought to a new level, uh, things that you just could have played differently. Um, so, yes, there's, there's never anything complete as an artist. And if you start convincing yourself that, that that's the case, that's when you really get into trouble. Oh, I understand that perfectly. I used to... I still do somewhat, but I used to teach for the Red Cross CPR and first day classes for over 20 years. And 
I used to teach 250 classes a year. So it was like CPR, first aid, there was professional CPR, all these different variations. But for the most part, it was adult CPR and first aid because you're going to businesses and teaching it. And I had this one lady who was a co-instructor of mine. Her and I had worked together for years. And she finally asked me, because, how do you do it? And I said, how do I do what? And she goes, you know what, you know what you're going to say. You know what they're going to say before they say it. You know what the questions are going to be. How do you do how do you do it and make it fresh? I said, I look at it as a play. All right. If I'm, if I'm doing a play and I'm doing this play a hundred times, you know, in, in a few month period, there's somebody in that audience that's seen it for the first time. And if I'm mailing it in, they're going to think this is a terrible performance and a terrible everything. So you got your, te- your, your, I'm teaching to that person that's new in the class, not to the other eight people or nine people in the class that have had CPR before, but to the one person that's, new and they're learning it for mm-hmm. the first time. And that's how, you, and, but I'd always, you know, you'd always try to change things and try to alter things and do different things. And when I would drive home, I'd always be thinking, what can I do better? And I never felt I was like, I never did anything perfect. I always felt I got close to it sometimes, but there's always things that's like, Oh, I could have did this different, that different, because you never know what your students are going to be like. But in your case, you don't know what the audience is going to be like that given day. And that, that's the performance you're trying to do. Definitely. Uh, and there are all kinds of different techniques with which people can can and do approach acting. You've heard of method acting, which originated with Lee Strasberg. There's Stella Adler's technique. Um, there's Stanford Meisner's technique. Stanford Meisner was really big on uh, being in the moment and being present all the time. And as an actor, I don't, I don't ascribe to any one technique. I just pick and choose what works for me out of, out of each one. And, and what's great about, about Sanford Meisner is just, again, always being present. And every time you perform a scene, even if it's the, the 50th time you perform that scene in, in that day, there's, there's always something different. There's always a new thing to respond to. And so just always being aware and being perceptive and responding to what is brought to you in that particular moment is, is really key to a great acting performance, I think. And I think the other thing is never letting the audience ever catch you acting. It's, there's so, I think that's the toughest thing. There's so few natural actors. I like to call them. It's like James Gardner, where when he performs, you just feel like he's saying it fresh for the first time and it's like it's like he's his character it's just everything's just coming at that moment it's not like somebody that's doing the, the lines of a script and waiting for you to say it's just the whole way he's reacting and act reacting to what the other performers are doing or situations are going on and things like that it's just that's when you know i think for me as a as a consumer side of it when i'm looking at somebody doing that i'm like oh they're doing it they're doing it because I, I don't see them i, I feel they are that character and uh, there's there's so few performers that are so gifted to reach that level where you don't sense that they are Meryl Streep or Tom Hanks or James Garner. You just feel they are that particular that particular character. I yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I adore James Garner. Um, of course, he is uh, he is passed on now, but uh, he's he's an Oklahoma native. And there was a time when I was in college, he came to visit the School of Drama at the University of Oklahoma because he was one of the, the big donors to the program. Um, so he, he came by and he did like a question and answer session with the whole group and talked to us about his, his approach to the art of acting. And he really, 
he's just a genuine down home guy. And he's very much about just tell the story, just you know, do the full analysis of the script, know exactly what it is that, that you're, you're into and know the, the setting and the character, but just tell the story. Don't be acting, schmacting, just have the conversation. And that was such an important lesson to me too. Like when you're, when you're thinking about thinking, you are adding a level of reality that does not exist in the world of the play or the movie. Just have the conversation. It's such an important acting note that I think so many people miss when they're, they're focusing too much on, on all the technical stuff that they're not just being present. Um, so being able to meet him and have those conversations was wonderful. Got to take a, a picture with him afterwards. And he just, he was, he was such a charmer. He had that, that Cathedate, the Canary Grand. He was a little ornery, but just in the most delightful way, just absolutely wonderful. And that was, that was one of my favorite memories from college was getting to meet James Garner. Oh, I'd have loved to have met him. I remember hearing him in an interview talking about when he was in the play. Um, uh, it was the, the, the Kane Mutiny. I think it was the Kane Mutiny. Um, where he played one of the judges and the judges really don't say anything. So, and he would trying to do different things to keep himself, you know, entertained. And then he realized I got to stay present in the moment. And so he started to learn that, to listen to everything that was going on. And he would keep the other judges awake because he would notice that they would start to nod off or like, but he says you can easily wander off. And when you wander off, then you're like, where am I? What's going on? You know, you start to lose track of what's going on in the play and people in the audience will look at you and see that. But I think that that's where he said he learned about staying in that, that, that present moment and staying and listening to what everybody was saying. He had to do that because he was sitting there night after night, you know, for, for months playing this judge. And he had the, and he took it as a chance to learn how to stay in the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's so important too, is, is for actors, even who are established actors to approach every new opportunity as a learning experience. So you can continue to grow as an artist. We talked about Meryl Streep, who is at the top of her game. She has no peers. She's, a, a, I would view her as perfect, but ultimately there's, there's no such thing. And I'm sure she, she's always working to improve and, and just be better than she was last time. And, and that's, that's the mark of it. a really, a really great artist. And that goes back to, like I said, if you were to ask her, she would never tell you she's ever mastered her craft. And I think that's the, the key thing for a performer or anybody in they're not just acting, but anything in life. If, as soon as you feel you've mastered something, it, 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 that's when you better start switching to something else because it's other people might call you a master. That's fine. You know, that's what you feel internally that you know that you have to keep striving to get better, striving for that perfection that will never come. But we always, as humans, strive for it. And as actors and performers, it's the same thing. You're always just striving. You're, you're, you're looking for the perfection. And if you, when you go to watch mm-hmm. it later on, you're like, oh, I could have did this or that. And I imagine it's even worse for a director because they have to see it over and over in the editing. And then it's out. And then if they go to see it again, they're like, oh, should have done this. I could have done that, you know, and, and, and cause also they've changed too. They've gotten better in their craft from where they were when they did that particular work. And so they're looking at it in a different lens now, which makes it even tougher. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are some people who are, who are really uncomfortable with that. If you think back to when you were in high school, there were some students who were math and science students. And then there were others who were 
like English and history and art students. And people who, who are, are, are drawn to math and science love the consistency and predictability of it. If you have a, a long division problem, you, you can do it absolutely perfectly right and you'll get an answer. And if you do it right again, you'll get that answer again. You get the same answer every time. And there is something really comforting about that consistency. And art doesn't have that at all. There is no perfect right answer. Um, there's, there's no way to, to get an A on your paper every time because there's always going to be a different approach to it. There's always something that can be better, always something that can be changed to make it newer and fresher and more wonderful and more interesting. And that's the beauty of it, but that's also the challenge of it uh, for someone who is a little bit more pragmatic in their approach to life. But um, for me, ultimately, that's, that's the draw of it. It's, there's always something new and interesting. There's always something to explore. Uh, in, in an artistic project, particularly as an actor, when it's a study of human nature, because humans are so beautifully complex. And I was, was studying human nature. One thing we'll never, ever know is what the person thought during that time, because nobody knows what people are thinking. And you can come close to people, even, even people that are experts in that person. To pick whichever one, you know, it could be an FDR expert or Franklin Donald Roosevelt. Um, you can be, you know, the person who's an expert or whatever person in history. You never know a hundred. You're never going to know a hundred percent what they would have done in any situation or what they were thinking at that time. And you can only speculate. But as soon as people tell you, "Well, they said this because of this," I'm like, "You're never going to know that. There's no way in the world you know that." And as a performer, you're trying to capture what you think they were thinking and do what they would do, but you never, you know, and people say, Oh, well, that was a really good performance. And they liked it. And, and I think the best judge is always, if they're still have living relative that knew them and they said that that was mm -hmm. like them. And, you know, and that's when, you know, you've, you've actually kicked close if you're trying to do a, a, a true person. Yes. But that's, that's also why the, the thought of, a portraying a character who is or was a real person to me, that is so intimidating. And I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. I haven't done it yet, but that's the idea of it is just terrifying because when it's a fictional character, you are involved in the process of creating who that character is. Even though there's a screenwriter who has written every line and every word, it's, it's your job as the actor to figure out why the character says this line or performs this action. And there really is no wrong answer. Um, you have, you have total freedom and total liberty to make those choices that you don't necessarily have. If this person really existed and the, the scenario in which they're living really exists, I mean, you have to do a whole lot more research and it's, it's a whole lot more technical. Um, that's not so much living in the world of the imagination. So very intimidating. I'm open to it. I'd, I'd love to challenge at some point in the future, but haven't been brave enough to do it yet. Well, you don't know what the, you, you got a long career ahead of you, so it's um, there's, I'm sure somewhere down the line that'll that'll change. Maybe maybe yeah, Ansel so. maybe, maybe Ansel will do a true historical type thing and or base some, have some characters that are based in it where you can actually have something to work with. He's done a little tiny bit with um um in his theater fantastique with a Poe to poem a poem to Poe. Yes, yes. And and of course, Edgar Allan Poe was utilized in there, and you were in that one. You played I was, and I, I love that. Uh, yeah, there's there's something really, really dark about Edgar Allan Poe's uh, works um, that is, I, there's, I know, it's kind of majestic in a way. There's something that really draws you in, and it's not quite fantasy, but it's not too far from it. 
Um, and there's, there were elements of it that I just thought were, were so beautiful and the way that we filmed a lot of that on, on the beach. And I love the symbolism of the ocean and how, how deep and dark it is and how mysterious and, and you don't quite know what's out there. And um, being able to perform that with Chris Pennock, I just, everything about that project I thought was just so wonderful and beautiful and dark and magical and mysterious. But I, I thought it turned out really, really nicely. Ansel did such great work with that. And, and being a person who um, grew up most of his life, I was born in the small town in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. When I was five, we moved down to Baltimore. Edgar Allan Poe, Baltimore. I don't think I have to tell people much more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so and, and yeah, I'm sure that that was a, a big part of your upbringing too. Oh, it was. I mean, when you're going to English classes, of course, everybody had. I think at least the classes I was in, we were always when we got to high school reading Poe, and um, it was it's amazing writing, and it's just interesting how he was able to in that short put the writing in with the truth with the stories that he wrote and try to intertwine them. Um, I thought that was, I thought that was a, a nice unique take and I, I enjoyed it, you know, and um, it was a small, small cast. There's only four of you, but I mean, it was able to go through and, and do it very, very nicely. Yeah. And you know, what I love about Edgar Allan Poe was that his work was so authentic and such a reflection of, of who he was. There are some writers who can only write the really, really dark stuff when they're at a great place in their life and can totally separate themselves from it. But I think Edgar Allan Poe really was just a tortured soul. And this was the way that he was able to, to reflect on that. And it was almost a, a catharsis for him to be able to, to put a pen to paper with it. And, and all of his works and his poetry, it's, it's just like a window into his soul and, and who he was. Uh, and that's, that's really fascinating as, as an artist and as an actor. And, you know, especially the way that Ansel was able to adapt parts of his poetry um, for, for this film in, in seeing the, the crossover uh, between poetry and acting and all these other forms of art um, and being able to just try to kind of put yourself into, into his shoes at the time and imagine what he was feeling when he wrote it and the way that he felt for each of these characters and try to bring that to life along with what the character is feeling. Just you know, putting that whole, uh, that whole menagerie together. Uh, was was really quite a process, and I, I enjoyed it so much. Oh, and your, your um body language, um, and facial expressions, because a lot of it was that early, on, especially early on in the in the, uh, the 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 short, was great when you're reading his works, you know, at the candlelight, and you know, it's and the horror that was in your face. You're like, he's writing this, and you know, you, it, it was it was it was interesting to see your like mm -hmm. your facial expressions and things like that. And how it, like I said, for those that haven't seen it, it's, it's out there and it's, it's a, it's a nice little, I think it's like 11, 14 minutes long, something like that. It's a nice short and it's, it's very enjoyable, especially if you like Poe and, if you're, and even if you don't, even if you're not familiar with Poe, it'll give you a little taste of Poe and it might make you want to go read his works, which are available in the library. I mean, you know, they're not that hard to find. Yeah. And, and Ansel in the way that he produced it. Um, I, I think he was he was true to the original intention of, of what was written. Uh, he was very respectful of, of Edgar Allan Poe in the way that he told the story, uh, and I think it came together really nicely. Now, now as part of the Theater Fantastique, which you were a member of that troupe, 
um, and Christopher Pennock yeah. was, Eric Gorlo, and so on. Um, one of the ones, speaking of Poe, a descent into a Maelstorm, where, again, you played Annabelle Lee, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting because it was like, and, and Christopher Pennock played the captain and Jackson Gutierrez played Reynolds. And for those familiar with the work, you knew where it was going to go or have an idea. But I love it because you also play in about a couple different ways in the, in the, in the short. And I like how they had that little trans, you know, transference or, you know, moving back and forward with it. But it was, that was very enjoyable. And you, cause you got the, you got to go in full makeup and you got to be normal or normal, like, you know, and all, you, you got to play many mm-hmm. different shades. Yeah. Um, it, it was, it was really great. Um, with, with the first, um, Edgar Allan Poe piece that we did, uh, there's, there's a kind of a general understanding of who Annabelle Lee was in the zeitgeist. And I wanted to be true to that. But once we got into descent into a maelstrom, uh, we were able to really dive into how tortures, this person was um and, and there was there was more exploration with it um it it, it felt in a way like a, a character evolution uh in being able to really really dive into the truth of, of what was in her heart and what was on her mind um there were more liberties taken with the writing there it almost it felt like a it was like a sequel in a way but um it, there were there were a lot of, of different choices made that were able to just expand on on the work that Edgar Allan Poe did in in the minds of Ansel and all of the actors who collaborated on it. It was a, a great experience and and certainly learned a lot from that as well. Being able to take a, a well known character but add my own interpretation to it and be able to to add on to the story in a way that felt truthful to me. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And it was it was it was interesting because I saw that before I saw uh, you know uh, the the poem for Poe, the poem of Poe. You know, I saw that one first. So, it's, oh. you know, when I was going through, because on the, on the CD, I'm mean, the, the CD, DVD I have of the, of the, it, it's not, it's not the first thing it's, um, it's in the middle. So, so when you go through them, you know, you get it in the middle after, after this one, I think is the second one. I think it's the second one on the disc is the Maelstrom. And so you, if, so if you're following the disc, you would see the other one later on. And so then it's, so it takes a different image because the, what you did was first, I, that's the first I knew the other one was prior to this one. So I thought it was the other way around because the way that's the way I saw it. Um, yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's been, it's been several years, but I, I always viewed poem of Poe as being descent into a maelstrom, just in, like in chronological order of the way the story is being told. Um, but, but yeah, there's, it, it, it was all such an interesting process and theater fantastique is kind of, kind of an anthology with little vignettes. Uh, and they're all different stories that are being told in each episode. And there's a lot of the same actors playing different characters and just some of them are, are totally unrelated. I mean, look at the family wolf and how that compares to descend into a maelstrom and uh, home of the murderous Mahomes. And um, they're, they're all very different, but, Ansel has a, a great way of, of telling stories and being able to incorporate lots of different elements of, of life and storytelling into what he does. So just to, to sit down and watch all those little pieces back to back, I think it's probably pretty interesting. Yeah. Cause you could tell that Poe was a big influence on Ansel cause he did mask of the red death in it, which you were one of the, um, 
guest, Prospero's guest, and um, and now one, mm-hmm. and so you could just see that what what's one of the things that influence Ansel the most besides Dark Shadows is Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Now speaking of the Family Wolf, that was actually the one I I, I had the most fun with because it, it, so, it was yeah, it is so funny you know, how it goes through. It, it's kind of like a modern version of the Adams Family and the meets the monsters meshed together, and you got the Family Wolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we um, we actually used uh, the monsters as inspiration for some of that. Um, I don't know if you remember much about the monsters, but I always I always love them and the, the the dark elements of the city there. Um, there was a little bit of horror, but it was always a little bit tongue in cheek, also. And I think I think that was the goal. That's I think, like I said, for the, you know, Adam's family and the monsters meshed together, and this was like their this was like the, the child of them and. Your character was the, um, for those, like, if you look at the Monsters TV show, for those people wondering, there's always that person that visits the Monsters, and at first you were scared, you wanted to get out of there, and then you decide, oh, I've got training, I'll know how to do this, because your training is as a nurse in a psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you remember with the Munsters, there was one character. I think her name was Marilyn, mm-hmm. and she was the one normal human, just surrounded by all of this madness. Uh, and I think that was that was the goal with this particular character to be able to display that. And this is this is one of those situations where so much of the acting work is in the reacting to what's happening around you. And I wanted to make sure that I was I was true to that and true to the responses and. Uh, being able to be honest about how this character would react in this situation, but always keeping the the funny light energy of, of the project as a whole um, in my interpretation of it. So that's always a little bit of a challenge. You want to, you want to keep the spirit of, of what the director has in mind uh, while, while playing, playing to your own strengths and your own ideas of, of what the character has in mind. And then that one, it's, it's not just it's not just the first film, not the first movie or short or whatever you worked with, but Elise Ashton, um, she played um, Rwanda Wolf. You got to work with her. What is it like working with her? Because she, I, I saw many different she, things. She seems amazing. She's so fascinating, and she's one of those people who, even when she's not acting, is just fascinating to watch. Um, she does have a a bit of an Elvira look to her, and and that's that's how she is in, in her life. And she, she has the, the dark hair and you know, she does the, the pretty heavy eye makeup. Um, she just, she is so fun to watch. She has, you know, her look is kind of, kind of dark. And again, the, the heavy makeup, but her voice is so soft. She's very, very gentle. And just in, in the way that she, she speaks and the way that she touches things and the way she, she handles people. There's, uh, you know, it's, it's almost a an oxymoron in in the way that she is. I think that's part of what makes her so interesting, and that's what draws the eye so much. Is she's it's the the cognitive dissonance of it. She's exactly the opposite of what you would expect when you look at her. Um, and she's absolutely darling, just a sweet person. She has um, she has a pet bird named Gigi that she loves, and she talks about Gigi the way I talk about my Opie. I mean, she just she loves her her pet Gigi. Um, so just, yeah, just really, really interesting to, to listen to her and watch her. She's someone who, uh, likes to go do, um, old ballroom dancing and she likes to go out to, 
should tea with people. She likes to have tea, like old English tea. Um, just, yeah, really, really interesting person. Really, really fun to watch her and fun to watch her approach to the art because she just has a, a whole different set of training and skills than, than what I have. And it was really interesting and fun to watch her. Oh, I, I can tell. And, and you can also tell when everybody's enjoying everybody else's company because you can, you can see it in their performances. And um, it, it's, it was just yeah. something with all of you seem to click. And I don't want to spoil anybody that hasn't seen it to what happens, but I love your line at the end. You know what? It's been so many years. I don't even remember it. Well, I can't say it because it kind of spoiled, but it's, it, it, but it's just, it's, it's funny. Cause it was, it's, it, it's, um, we'll talk about it. I'll tell you, okay. I'll tell you after the interview, cause I don't want to spoil it for people during the interview. Um, you know, okay. what you say at the Very end. Very good. Of, yeah. I also, I don't, I don't tend to go back and watch old work that I've done. Cause I just, I, I think of all the things I could do differently. So I don't torture myself that way, but I, I do remember it was a really funny piece and we'll have to talk about that last line when we're finished. Yeah, and for those that have the theater um, fantastic is available at um, oldies.com. You know, it's, it's it's like $7 and you get all the episodes. Um quite a few of them are also available on um on YouTube on Ansel's um Hollandsworth Productions page. Not all of them, but uh, quite a few. So you, if you want to get a taste of them, I'm not sure if this one is on his YouTube or not, but you can go there and if, if you start if you like some of them then it, it's $7 purchase the disc, you know, and um, then you'll have them all. And you don't have to worry about it if it ends if if it ends, if it leaves YouTube. You'll have it forever. You'll have it forever, and it's it's a great way to support artists, especially during this time when so much art is shut down. Um, I definitely would encourage you to spend the seven bucks and and get that theater fantastic series. It'll help you escape reality for a, a brief moment, and and all the episodes are, are really fun and interesting. Yeah, and and, and it, it's for those like get an idea. It's like it's like a modern version of Tales from the Dark Side. You know, where it's like, you never know what you're going to get each one, except the difference is having a lot of the same performers showing up episode after episode. You're not in every episode, so it's not like every performer is in every episode, but I think you're like in six of them or something like that. You know, you're in most of them. And um, sometimes you're playing major roles. Sometimes you're playing more of a minor role. Everybody shifts around. And Christopher Pennock is is also in the majority of them. Yeah, he is. Chris Pennock was, he was one of the OGs. As we say, he was, yeah, he was in, I think, if not all the episodes, almost all of them. And he, he was kind of the, the heart and soul of it. Um, he, he made every episode really interesting. And he's, he's such a hoot to work with. He's such a funny, funny person. Um, so always, always interesting to hear his stories. And he brings such light to the set. It's always a fun day when we get to work with him. It, it seems like he seems like this person. I've, I've seen him in some other interviews and uh, uh, where he, just just loves talking to people and talking about different things and i think that's where actors learn a lot from communicating and talking to other people is then they learn and then and somewhere in the back of your mind it's going to influence you when you're developing another character you'll be like oh i remember talking to so-and-so or seeing so-and-so do this at the mall well that tells you how old i am the mall but you know and, and those kind of things or seeing somebody walking around the street and, and you take that in whether subconsciously or consciously to utilize later on yeah. Um, and the thing about Chris is that, you know, he works in LA quite a bit cause he's an actor, but he doesn't live in LA. He lives a couple hours East in the mountains. And I almost think that that makes him more grounded and more interesting. But something about living in LA, it makes everyone ultimately kind of the same. There are so many cookie cutter personality types. It gets kind of exhausting and monotonous, but Chris has stayed absolutely true to who he is. 
And I think part of that is just being able to separate himself from it and to live his own life and just come into LA when he needs to. Um, so, you know, he has his family out there and his daughter and, um, he has his own individual life and he gets to, I think, work on some, some theater in a, in a small way out there where he lives in the mountains and, um, just really, really great guy. And it's again, always just a privilege to get to have him on set. I always picture him being like the, the, the Zen master that comes to show up for Angel's project. You know? <laughs> <way to> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Except there are times when he is the source of energy. He's the opposite of Zen. Like we all come in and we're tired and we're exhausted. And, you know, we've stayed up all night trying to make sure we have all our lines memorized and all that stuff. And he'll come in and he will just be the life of the party. And then, yeah, other times he's, he's the Zen guy, keeping everyone in line, keeping everyone sane. But but yeah, you never know with him. Every, every day with Chris is different and he's totally unpredictable, but I mean that in, in the best way. And, Again, just a, a consummate professional as well. Always knows exactly what he's doing, and and he's kind of the the patriarch of the acting um, as we're as we're all working together and collaborating. Sounds like he's a, an excellent team player because he knows how to read the room and see and, and adjust himself accordingly to whatever the needs are of the group, the troop at that time. And I think that just goes with all those years of experience. Definitely, he he's one of those who can respond honestly in the moment as a character. Um, but he also responds to actors. And by that, I mean the, the human beings who are like the real people who are there and show up. And you know, as, as actors, we always try to, to check our baggage at the door, so to speak, and to leave all our problems on the outside. But sometimes that's difficult to do. And especially if you have a lot of time between scenes and a lot of time to just sit and think about things, you can kind of pull yourself out of it. And, and Chris is great about reading who these people are in the room and, and being able to get everyone centered and focused and back to the work. I always appreciated that so much about him. Maybe we should call him the guru, you know, just, just that way he knows. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's probably the perfect name for him. The guru. He, he is that guy. And everybody always needs that guy in their, t- in their group or their team, you know, and, and, and cause that's when you know you're going to have a successful team because you have that one person that can keep everybody grounded and ready to go for when they, when they need to do stuff. And, you know, down the road, that might be you, you know, learning from him and, and the passing of the torch. You never know where these things will take you. I, I hope so. I would, I would love to be so privileged just to be able to, to bring that spirit and that energy to future projects. So those skills that, that I've learned and hopefully been able to, to acquire in some way from being able to work with the greats like Chris Pennick and Catherine Lee Scott and Laura Parker and Jerry Lacey and, um, and of course, just being able to watch Ansel in this too, he's such a great leader, um, in the way that he, he corrals everyone and he sets the mood and sets the space. And he's very respectful of us as artists and, and what we plan to bring to each role. Um, but he's ultimately, he, he's the captain of the ship and that's, that's always very clear. And he has his particular vision and we always want to be respectful of that. Oh, and it shows. And, and like I said, we, we've seen him grow and. You were in his most recent production, the most, I mean, mm-hmm. I was about to say the most, that's something that's a different, that's the, uh, the most haunted house in Venice beach. And, um, that came out earlier this year in 2021. Yeah. And you got to play one of the spirits from the most haunted house. Um, you got to play Millie, who is, if I remember the psychic card, re- the psychic card reader, or just psychic. Yeah. Uh, palm reader and tarot card reader. Um, 
And Millie is one of the, the spirits inhabiting this house. And in, in reading the, the full script, I, I saw Millie as someone who, there were elements of her that were almost like Marilyn Monroe to me in that you know, she had been exposed to a lot. She had probably lived a really tough life, but there were elements of her that were so childlike. Uh, and I wanted to make sure I was able to, to bring that to the world. There was an innocence to her, even though she wasn't, she wasn't really pure of spirit. There were elements of her that were manipulative and deceptive, but it, it all came from, from a place of just almost a naivete um, that I thought was really interesting. And I wanted to, to make sure that I brought elements of that to the role. And for those wondering. And she would manipulate people, but I don't, I don't think she was ever ill-intentioned with it. I, I agree with you from watching it before. I didn't think she was ill-intentioned. It was like, um, sometimes she would know certain things. It's like, Oh, they don't want to know this. I'll tell them this, you know, and, um, you know, yeah. and trying to make, trying to make them happier, even though she knows something bad's going to happen or, or whatever to them. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that's the way I read it. And for those wondering about what this um, short is, and again, it's available on um, YouTube is, um, it's like Ansel took a house that he was fascinated with and wrote a backstory to it, but also as a loving homage to Venice beach. And so he includes like real facts in with the fantasy and to tell the story and all the spirits are from different eras and they're going over different parts of it. And it's, I've never lived, never seen Venice beach in person. You know, I've seen it on TV or whatever in the movies. Um, but it, it it was very heartfelt. You could just feel yourself being moved through the production. And this is a, a interesting production because this was going on during the pandemic. And obviously you didn't get to work with each other like you would normally do. What was it like doing a movie where you can't be with your co-stars? It, it was different for sure. Um, and this was done um, almost in a documentary style where each of the characters were being interviewed about their life experiences. So um, it was much more introspective work because there aren't other characters to react to in the moment. Um, so it's just, you know, telling your own life story. And um, yeah, again, I think, you know, you, you probably heard that the, the keys in life to happiness are something to do, someone to love and something to hope for. And I think this character was so intense on being able to do her job and provide an entertaining experience, but also didn't want to take away what people had to be hopeful for. Um, and I think that that was so clear in, in her story and the way that Ansel wrote it. And I thought that was such an interesting element of, of what he had written here. Um, yeah. Ansel is uh, he is from Venice beach and that Venice beach area. And he, he created this piece as really a love story to his hometown and, and I think that, that that is clear in, in the ultimate production of it. And he spoke with me about kind of how the idea of this came about. And he saw this particular house in Venice Beach, and it just in, inspired a whole host of ideas in him. And just from seeing that house, he was able to write a whole story. Uh, and we, we filmed this in different areas of Venice Beach. Um, there were parts of it that were um, just centered in the house and we you know worked on a on a set to be able to do that but there were lots of outdoor shots that we we filmed in different areas around the city uh, and Venice Beach is is beautiful it is beachy and wonderful but it's also it's gritty and it's seedy in certain ways you know there's a history to every home and and every business and 
every person there has a story and there's so much diversity to it. Um, and, and I think that, that Ansel did a great job of, of making sure that that was clear in, in the final product. Uh, I was very, very impressed when I saw the, the finished product. It was really beautiful. He did a great job. It's definitely one of his better works. I mean, I look at it, I think he's had this, Loon Lake and Will and Liz have been like his last three things. And he's really starting mm-hmm. to up his game as a, a mm-hmm. creator of, of movies. And I'm just, I'm just fascinated to see what he's going to do in the future. Cause he's so young and he's got so much ahead of him. It's going to be interesting to see where he goes. Uh, one of the things I want to mention, we talked about the, a lot of the bigger names that people know about with the dark shadows group that you worked with. What was it like working with a couple of the, his two of his regulars, um, um, Nathan Wilson and Kellen Aaron Decker, or also known as Kelly Kitko, because she goes by both names now in different movies. So if people are looking at it, they'll see one name in some and they'll see a different name in the others. Um, they're, they're like his like top two regulars, I would guess. And so you've been in lots of different things. What was it like working with Nathan? We'll start with him first. Nathan's great. Nathan is really, uh, we call him Nate on, on set. So uh, Nate is, is wonderful. He's very much a chameleon in the way that he adapts to, to each character. And he's not one to be especially vocal about it between takes. And he's not ever going to tell any other actors how to do their work. He just has his own approach to what he's doing. And he's very respectful of the process. But being able to watch him transform for each character he plays has been really interesting. Um, and as far as Kelly, um, I haven't worked with her quite as much, uh, but I, I've also seen her evolve quite a bit as an actor. Um, you know, beginning with um, Madame Lesseur, I think was one of the, the earlier works that I did with her. And then being able to watch her recently in Loon Lake, um, I thought was so interesting. I, I was not part of Loon Lake, but I thought ultimately the way that the way that it came out in the end was just magical. I'd, I'd watch it 50 times if I could. Um, I thought everyone did, did such great work there. And there was something so interesting about the way Kelly played her character and the softness with which she, she spoke kind of drew you in as a listener. And there was, there was a pace and a cadence about it. That they were all very intentional choices that I thought were just so genius of her as an actor. Um, she's really, she's grown so much and she's done a lot of interesting work and I'm excited to see where she goes from here. Oh, I am too. And it, it's the Madame Lesseur character. I know that's one of the things when I interviewed her and also talking to Ansel, there was like two projects they're trying to get funding for that, that, that are like their dream projects. They got multiple ones, but I mean, for, for Nate is a, is a boxer, a knuckle, the bare knuckle boxing type production and for okay. kelly it's madame lasore the feature link film set in the 70s ah and those I'll, would be so interesting i haven't talked with them about that but i think i think those would be really interesting projects to see oh i think so and it'd be interesting to see because you, you talk about one being more supernatural and the other one being i would assume being bare knuckle boxing more of a, a, a realistic type drama mm-hmm. you know and uh and I think that's uh, that's what I like to see with with Ansel, as you were saying, as he's growing, because like Will and Liz was a a, a romance, a drama, and of course Loon Lake is a is a ghost story, you know, a horror story, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's you like to see people going into different areas and not just pigeonholing themselves into one particular thing, 
Um, and I think that's, that's what helps. It's like helps them grow. And I think it helps you as performers grow when you're in these different things. I think that's definitely a feature fantastique where he was, you can see him going and trying all these different things and, and, and seeing improving and seeing you do these different things and seeing you be the comedic relief. Also seeing you being the demon in some of them, seeing you be the, the person in between, you know, it's, you've done a lot of different things and it's interesting to see what you're acting as you've grown also and have gotten in better and better and, and it has been very enjoyable. And I think it's just same thing like with the, um, the most haunted house in Venice beach, you know, you're where you're just acting to basically to Ansel. Cause I mean, at the time he, he's probably the only one who's like, I'm not sure no one when filming you. So mm-hmm. it's just you and him. And um, you were able to really get that across nicely. Thank you. Um, and that, that was all Ansel's brainchild. He was able to to find a way for us to to be able to be artists and create something really beautiful in a time when we all had to be socially distant. And Ansel was very respectful of COVID-19 protocols and made sure that we all filmed safely and from a distance and, and all of that. I and mean, he was very, very cautious about it. He was very concerned with protecting his actors. Um, and I, I appreciate that so much. Um, but yeah, to, to watch, to watch him grow throughout this whole process is interesting. I think, I think Ansel is, is most comfortable in that realm of, of fantasy and that whole dark shadows genre. Um, but, but watching him branch out is, is so great. And especially because he's so young to be able to explore these, these different elements of of writing and acting and totally different styles. Um, I think it's going to open him up for so many things in his future. Uh, and he's, he's not going to have to work with one particular type of film that's necessarily expected of him. Uh, I think the world is his oyster at this point. And again, he's so young and so talented and has so much under his belt already. Um, I think it'll be very, very interesting to see where he is 10 years from now and what kind of films he's making. It's really there's so much potential there for him. And not just him, but for you and, and, and the other people you mentioned, but because I've seen like, you're, like I said, you're growing and things like that and getting better. And I know you're deflecting and putting it back on the Ansel, you know, so, cause you know, that's what people, you know, a lot of people will do. It's like, Oh, it's not me. It's this or that, but you can direct, but you also need people that are able to and write, but you have to need people to bring to life, those characters. And I think it just shows that all of you guys are working so well together with, uh, as a team and I think that's the key thing with the success is that the team is working together and able to get through in that process so that we the, the end the viewer the audience get to see something that's enjoyable and especially this time when we all need something to have a little bit of a um, relief it's nice to know that he's still out there putting out product and able and you're able to help him along those lines to help us get that um that temporary um, a relief from normal normalcy. Yeah, um, I, I I appreciate. I'm I'm not great at taking compliments. That's why I'm a little bit hesitant. But um, I appreciate it. Uh, I think I think part of of, of the process uh, and how how we've all grown in this and being able to collaborate is uh, you know, we we all have an idea of what the character is before we we come in to start working together. We've all done our script and character analysis. We have an idea of what we want to do. Um, but there's, there's an old Tanya Tucker song called strong enough to bend. And I think that's the key to being a great actor in a collaboration 
is being generous with one another when we see what the other actors are bringing to the work and it's not at all what we expected, but being able to respond honestly in the moment to what the other actor is bringing and making sure that we are being both true to the script, true to the spirit of, of what Ansel has written and, and what he wants the final product to be, um, but also being very generous with our fellow actors. And that's, that's a skill that is, it's not something you learn from a book. It's something you acquire from experience. And I think everyone has improved greatly in that regard in the last several years. Oh, I, I definitely, I, I think so too, just from seeing it on my end, you know, I'm not, I'm not on the production end, but seeing the final, the finished product, um, that, that, I can definitely see that. Now, what do you, I know you don't only just do acting, you also do stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if a lot of people yeah, know that about I, you, but I mean, have you toured the country or are you mostly like local to where you live around? Um, I'm mostly local to Los Angeles. Um, I I am not, I have not pursued getting a, an agent for stand-up just because I don't, I don't aspire to be a traveling comedian. Um, I just, I can't, I can't justify living out of an airport so I can do a 20 minute set at a festival in Hoboken. I just don't want that life. Um, but I, I love being able to perform in Los Angeles and I've been doing this, um, since about 2015 and I performed at the comedy store and the improv and the last factory and the ice house and flappers. So I've done all of the, all of the main venues in Los Angeles and, I'm fortunate that they've all continued to ask me back and I continue to be able to write and adapt based on the times that we're in. It's been certainly very tricky during COVID because there are no live shows happening and everything has gone online. Um, the, the virtual world of comedy is, is different. And if I can just be totally frank with you, I don't love it. So I don't, I don't do a lot of virtual shows because you don't get that instant feedback and it's impossible to read the room. Um, it's just, it's not at all what I'm used to and it, it, I haven't been able to get comfortable with it. So I'm, I'm very excited about getting back to live audiences once we're finished with all this and, uh, very much looking forward to returning to the comedy store and flappers and, and all my old stopping grounds there. It, it really has been a blast. I got into comedy because I was getting frustrated as an actor because as an actor, you're so dependent on your agent and your manager to get auditions for you. And I, I was really struggling and just being so reliant on other people to get work. And I felt like with comedy, if I know what I'm doing, I can get my own job there. Um, so I started taking some, some classes to be able to write for stand-up comedy because there really is a, a specific formula to it that everyone kind of starts with. And then as, as a comedian, you expand on that and tell your own stories, but there is there is a very specific approach that every comedian has to writing for stand-up. So I took some classes and was able to uh, to meet some other professional comedians and just get started in the whole business of doing that in Los Angeles. And it, it really has been a wonderful creative outlet. Um, there isn't so much collaboration. It's, I write all my own material and I perform it all by myself. So I, I miss the collaboration aspect, but it's great to be able to explore both the writing and the performing together. That, that sounds perfect. I, and I think there is a collaboration part with stand-up comedy, comedy, and that's when you're performing. You learn real quick what's working and what's not working, and I think that's, you know, and then you adapt accordingly. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. so in that product, because every night's audience is is going to be different. And so, some you know, you can have that 
in one like a joke that could work eight times out of ten, and then you find out oh it didn't work this time. I want you know, and it could be you, or it could have been the crowd you're talking to at that time, and how the receptive they are to those different things. And I think that's what's 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 great about live performing. And I think I agree with you. Virtual comedy, I know. I've seen it and I've, I've never tried to do it because I'm thinking, how's that going to work? You know, it's don't, it could work if you had a, for me as an audience, maybe if I had like people in the family, like if we're all watching it together so we can have that group experience, like you would at a table at the thing, but it's, but if you're just watching it by yourself, it's, it, it, it's kind of, it's kind of like, as you said, as a performer, you know, you, you don't know, well, was that funny? I mean, I'm laughing, but I don't know if anybody else is. And that, you know, it's just kind of, I think when you hear other people laughing, it makes it just makes the jokes even better, and and I think everybody just feeds off that energy, and I think that's just not just with stand-up comedy, but 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 um, plays, musicals, everything, everybody feeds off that live energy right there, and that, that's what's missing from. And I think with movies, exactly, they should be seen in the theater, the cinema, so that way you get that that group experience and and have more enjoyment out of it. It's nice to see them at home. I see things on YouTube, but I mean, it's, I think the best experience is when it's on the big screen. Sure. Yeah. And with stand up, you really need that live audience and the live audience really needs each other. And um, that they're kind of encouraging each other to laugh and to let loose. And they don't feel like they have to stifle laughter because they're afraid of interrupting. They just let it go when it's a whole room of people who are laughing and having a great time. Um, and, and, and what I will say about reading the room is, every comedian has had at least one, probably multiple uh, shows where they've just bombed uh, and nobody wants that. Nobody looks forward to to bombing, but boy, once you bombed, my God, are you fearless going forward? You're so much better at your next show. You know exactly how to read the room. Um, and the the most important thing I learned in, in preparing for stand up comedy and, and really getting my start is that as, as antithetical as this sounds, it should never be your goal to make the audience laugh because that gives the audience a job and they will feel it if they have a job. If they, if they feel like they have to take care of you as a comedian, that's the wrong dynamic. Your goal as a comedian should just be to have a point of view, just have something to say. And if your jokes are well-written, they're going to land and you're going to be just fine. So just trust in your own work and trust your audience and just have the conversation and the laughs will be there every time. Uh, I think that definitely like with Dave Chappelle being probably the most recent one that you could say to when you go to, when you see his performances, it's definitely a point of view and he takes it and he goes there and like him or not. I mean, he, he has his routine and he has it going and he just performs and does um, inter, you know, interesting and great work. I mean, you know, it's, not every joke is going to be for everybody, not everything, but he definitely is somebody that's at the top of his game. Definitely. Yeah. And he just, he has something to say. Um, and that's why it, it always kind of works, even when it doesn't, because he has that point of view. He's fearless. And as you said, once you bomb, yeah. I guess you're fearless too. So we can say you're fearless also. Yeah, I, I have been there and that, that makes it so much easier to get up on stage every time after that. Um, and it really, it has been such a joy and it, it's been a great way to get to, to spend any of my extra time when I'm not focused on acting, uh, is being able to do that stand-up comedy and it's a relief for me and I hope that it brings some joy to the people around me. And it's, it, it's a way that I love to be able to be part of the Los Angeles artistic community. 
Now, for our listeners, how could they follow you or find more information about you, Kelsey? They can find me on Twitter is what I recommend. I am at Kelsey Hewitt. So just my name. Um, I am not on Instagram because I just I feel too old for that. And I'm, I'm way too old for, for TikTok and Snapchat and all that other stuff. But y'all can find me on Twitter. Um, be, be forewarned. I'm, I tell some jokes on Twitter, but I'm also fairly political. So uh, just keep that in mind. If that's what you're looking for, then, then give me a follow at Kelsey Hewlett on Twitter. All right. And um, do you have any upcoming projects that you can talk about that are coming that, that are coming in the pipe or is it, are you still waiting for the um, things to reopen back up? I wish I could tell you about some things that I'm working on, but right now I'm just waiting on things to reopen. Um, it looks like in Los Angeles, things are, are just starting to open up. Uh, SAG-AFTRA just this week has allowed production to resume, but that means everything is starting over, even from the casting perspective. So um, there are some things that were on hold that are going to be starting up again. But for the most part, these projects, they can't depend on their actors to just kind of be on hold for whenever. So a lot of them are just starting from scratch. So hopefully I will have some new projects to talk about shortly. But as of right now, everything is just starting anew and uh, trying to adhere to safety protocols and all that. It's, it's a slow process, but very hopeful for a, a new and exciting 2021. Oh, definitely. And um. Kelsey, thank you for joining us and um, letting us have a conversation with you about you know, your movie career and other things and stuff like that. Dolly Parton, Will Rogers. I'm sure there's people that are, that are listening and have no idea who we're talking about when we mention Will Rogers or sadly Walter Cronkite. But, you know, it's um, hopefully you know, a quick Google search and they'll learn. Yes. Oh, they're so important. Just absolute heroes. Just wonderful, wonderful American icons. So if, if you don't know them, look them up. But thank you again for taking time out of your day to join us, and um, I hope you I hope you had fun. Thank you, Stephen. This has been wonderful. Appreciate it. All right, everybody. Um, thank you for listening in, and um, stay tuned for the next episode where the role, the movie is decided by the roll of a die, or it could be an interview. Next episode will tell you what's coming. Bye. <laughs>